0: This Parsha podcast is sponsored by my dear friend Chishtov in honor of his wife Melina on the occasion of their recent marriage. And on behalf of the entire Parsha podcast family, we wish them a hearty congratulations on their marriage and we wish them a life of happiness and great health and harmony and prosperity together. If you would like to sponsor an episode of the Parsha podcast or if you have any questions or comments or feedback of any sort – please email me, RabbiWolby at gmail.com. We have a brand new book. We have concluded, with the help of the Almighty, the book of Genesis. We now embark on the second book of the Torah, the second book of the Pentateuch, the book of Exodus, the book of Shmos. I am incredibly excited. I am energized. I am overjoyed. I'm delighted as we begin. Now, I want to remind the audience that I've been sending out email newsletters each Thursday, and there's a little bit of a new game that I started to play with it. And maybe if you're interested in such a thing, you could play along. And I got this idea from my brother. My brother told me, say, listen, Yakov, I read your email. And I can prove to you that I read your email because I found this typo. So I decided every week I'm going to put in a new typo and test him to see if he actually read the email and found the typo. So I turned it sort of into a little game. And if you would like, you can play along. And if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, to email me or go to rabbeowalby.com forward slash newsletter. Now, in addition to the emails, I also have a Twitter and a Facebook account. I don't really post so much on them. But every podcast and every newsletter is automatically posted to Twitter and Facebook, twitter.com forward slash rabbeowalby.com. Facebook.com forward slash Rabbi Wolby. So in this week's parasha, we meet, of course, the greatest leader of our people's history and arguably the greatest leader of all of human history, and that is, of course, Moshe. And the story of his rise, of course, it's quite improbable because he is raised as an adopted son of the Egyptian princess which, of course, is unexpected. You never would have imagined that the Savior of the Jews would come from the epicenter of the enemy. But Moshe is someone who displays tremendous leadership credentials and characteristics from the beginning of his life, from when he matures, and he is destined for greatness. Now, he, of course, has the dramatic episode at the burning bush. And Rashi tells us that the dialogue between him and God, the protracted back and forth, actually took seven days. And every year when we get to Parsha's Shmos, it kind of fascinates me anew, the following exchange. God tells Moshe, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to go to speak to Pharaoh. I want you to go save the Jewish people from their misery, from their torment, from their slavery. And ultimately, Moshe accedes to the Almighty's request. He acquiesces. He goes and he begins to negotiate with Pharaoh. But between the initial instruction of God, and when finally Moshe acquiesces, there's seven days, and there is a very long dialogue where Moshe poses all kinds of hesitations and deliberations and objections and resistance of all types. And finally, after the Almighty swats away all of Moshe's hesitations, and rebuts all his objections, Moshe agrees to go. The Torah, of course, likes to cut out a lot of the fat. We don't know so much about Moshe's life, you know, from when he left Pharaoh until he has the burning bush episode. Abraham's first 75 years of his life are omitted from the Torah's narrative. The Torah is very skimpy about what it tells us and what it doesn't tell us. Moshe was told to go lead the Jewish people. He agreed. Why do we need to be told the very long narrative where Moshe and God are, so to speak, arguing whether it's a good idea for Moshe to go? Moshe poses all these objections and God responds and then Moshe poses more objections and God responds and finally Moshe goes. Simplified for me. Condense it for me. Maybe pare it down to one verse or two and say, well, Moshe initially had some hesitations. But ultimately, he agreed to go, it seems like that's all I really need to know. Yet the Torah tells us the entirety of this discussion. So what I want to do today is I want to speculate the following. Moshe is someone who is destined for greatness. He has the necessary prerequisites of being a great leader. He is someone who shows compassion. He is someone who empathizes with his constituents. He is someone who's willing to risk a lot, to save them. He is someone who is intolerant of evil. Moshe really has the complete package to become a great leader. What I want to suggest is this whole back and forth, this whole dialogue, all these objections that Moshe raises and the Almighty responds to, this is the Torah's guidance of how to be a great leader. These... Discussions contain the lessons needed to be a great leader and to be a great person. And I want to suggest that anyone who wants to become a great leader, and of course all of us on some level have to be leaders, we have to study this interaction, this dialogue, this narrative to know what exactly it means to become a great leader. So let's begin the narrative and see what we learn. So chapter 3 verse 6 God tells Moshe, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moshe covers his face. He doesn't want to see God. It's a very frightening sight. And God continues, I saw the suffering of the Jewish people. I heard their cries. I know their pain. I want to go save them. And I want to hire you for this sacred, noble, necessary task to go extirate the Jewish people from Egypt. And Moshe begins with, His first objection. And Moshe said to God, Who am I to go speak to Pharaoh? Says Rashi, Am I worthy? Am I honorable to go speak to kings? Objection number two. Why are the Jewish people worthy, meritorious of having a miracle of being extricated from Egypt? Moshe is posing two objections. Number one, who am I? I'm unworthy. I'm not worthy of being the person to go speak to kings, negotiate with kings, and be the leader of Jewish people. Moshe, of course, is displaying tremendous humility. I'm not worthy. But in addition to Jewish people, they're not worthy to have this miracle happen to them. Moshe here is posing two objections. He perhaps feels a little bit of imposter syndrome. I can't do it. I'm just a regular guy. I'm not someone who's going to alter world history. I'm not someone who's going to be the leader. That's his first objection. And his second objection is that, well, to leave Egypt, it's not an easy thing. It requires a miracle. Are the Jewish people worthy of having miracles done for them? Moshe is assessing the constituents, the flock, the people that he would lead if he were to accept this charge. And he deemed them unworthy. They're not righteous. They're not people that you would think. These are the people that are deserving of a miracle. So Moshe has posed two objections, and God, in his rebuttal, addresses both points. This is the next verse, chapter 3, verse 12. And God said to him, I will be with you. And when you leave, you should know this is the sign that You will worship me on this mountain. They are talking about Mount Sinai. And God says, well, this is the sign that I sent you. When you leave after the Exodus, you're going to worship me on this mountain. How exactly does this address Moshe's concerns? Rashi tells us that Moshe had two concerns. And the Almighty responded to both concerns. To the first objection, the Almighty addressed first. And the second objection, the Almighty addressed second. The first objection, after all, it was... Who am I to go speak to Pharaoh? Says God, I will be with you. What does that mean? Explains Rashi. You're not going on your own volition. You're not going based upon your own righteousness, based upon your own worthiness to go negotiate with Pharaoh. This is not your handiwork. This is my handiwork. Who are you? You're nobody. Of course, any human that accomplishes anything ultimately it's all from God. You are not the one who's going to save the Jewish people. You are my tool, my implement that I am going to use to save the Jewish people. I think this is the first lesson that we could derive from the story about leadership. When the Almighty puts someone in position to accomplish something big, of course, it has to be as big as saving the whole Jewish people. But any role where someone has a leadership position, someone has authority, someone has oversight, someone is responsible for something really big, he has to know that ultimately this is a person trying to effectuate the will of God, but it's not the person who's accomplishing it. It's God who's doing it, and he's choosing you to be his emissary. This is the Jewish perspective on leadership. It's not what you're accomplishing. It's can you be a worthy emissary of God who is accomplishing it? The Mishnah tells us in Perkyavos chapter 2 that if someone acts on behalf of the public in a proper way, they will get the reward as if they actually did something. Wait a minute. They did something, right? Says the Mishnah, no. If you accomplish something, ultimately... It's God who wanted that to happen. But if you act properly, if you do it for the sake of heaven, you will get reward as if you did something. Ultimately, it's not you who does, it's God who does. But if you act with integrity, if you execute your responsibility with the right intent, with the right motivation for the sake of heaven, then you get the reward as if you actually did something, but you actually didn't. That is the lesson that God tells Moshe. Who am I? Moshe, you're wondering? You're nobody. Every human is but an implement in the hands of God. And that's what a true Jewish leader acknowledges. It's not you who makes the change. It's God. But maybe if you do what's incumbent upon you, you will have the reward as if you actually did it. That's the response to the first objection. Well, what's the second objection? What is the merit of the Jewish people? So God responds, well... The sign that I sent you is that you will worship me after the Exodus on this mountain. Now, every year when I read this verse, it's perplexing anew. Moshe is telling God, "What merit the Jewish people have to leave? They're not such righteous people. How could a miracle happen to them that results in them leaving? They're not worthy of miracles." They're a sinful people. We find out later on in Exodus that really they are indistinguishable from their Egyptian neighbors. The only difference is, and we've mentioned this in the past, the only difference is that the Jewish people maintained some cultural identity as Jews. Why is this nation going to merit miracles of Exodus? And what's God's response? Well, after they leave, they're going to worship me on this mountain. Well, how does how does that answer the question? It's not immediately clear how Moshe's objection is being addressed. I think we've arrived at the second and maybe the most critical lesson of leadership that's being conveyed over here. Moshe is making an assessment of the Jewish people. And he says, based upon everything I know, they are not worthy of being redeemed. They're not worthy of having this miracle of the Exodus. And what does God say to Moshe? God says to Moshe, you're making a fundamental mistake of leadership. You are judging your charges, your constituents, the way they are right now. A leader is required to always envision what the pupil, what the charge could become. Moshe was correct in his assessment. The way they are right now in their current state, they're indeed not worthy of a miracle. But what's going to happen? They going to get to Sinai. They're going to get the Torah. The Torah, of course, is the perfecter, the refiner of mankind. And after they have Torah, and after they absorb the lessons of Torah, will they be worthy for a miracle? Of course. Moshe would never have the question of the nation after Sinai. Therefore, says God, as a leader, you have to view them already now based on what they could become in the future. Already now, they must be viewed in that prism. The biggest mistake, perhaps we could say, of parents, of educators, of leaders, of others, is viewing the people that you're leading as a finished product. Moshe is accurate in his assessment of the current state of the nation, of course. But God says, I'm going to save them because they will worship me on this mountain. And already now, I can envision, says God, and you must learn to envision that as well as a leader, we can look at the nation and say, what will happen to them? How will they develop? What will become of them in the event that they get Torah, they get Sinai? Will that nation be worthy of a miracle? Most certainly. And therefore, already now, the leader, the visionary, must develop the tool of saying, what can this person become? I think this is... a. Uh, very powerful and essential insight for leaders. And Moshe persists. He's raised two objections. The Almighty has rebuffed both of them. And he raises a third objection. This is chapter 3 again, verse 13. Yomer Moshe, Moshe said to God, Behold, I'm going to come to the Jewish people, and I'm going to say to them, Well, the God of your forefathers sent me to you, and they ask the following question, what is his name? What shall I tell them? As we know, and this is something that we'll see much more in next week's parsha, beginning of next week's parasha, but the Almighty has many different names. In fact, the Rabban tells us that the whole Torah is nothing but the names of God. And of course, every name of God connotes a different way of treating us. Of course, ultimately, Hashem Echad, God is one, but the different names of God, they represent the different ways that we could perceive divine treatment. And therefore, the question that Moshe is posing is, well, if the nation asked me what name of God, i.e., what behavior, what treatment of God is the Exodus going to be effectuated with, what name shall I tell them, i.e., how is this treatment going to be? And what does the Mighty respond this is again a very difficult verse, chapter three, verse fourteen. God responds to Moshe, asher I will be as I will be." And the verse continues, and God continues to say to Moshe, "Ko Israel, so shall you say to the of Israel, This Eke, this name of God, sent me to you. And this is a very difficult verse because Moshe asks the question, "What name?" And God responds with Eke Asher Eke, which is apparently one name. And then he repeats himself ostensibly, apparently. So shall you tell the Jewish people, Eke sent me to you. What's going on over here? So Rashi tells us that Eke Asher Eke, and by the way, we're saying it a little bit differently the way it's spelled because we don't say God's name the way it's spelled unless it is reading a verse in the Torah. So we say like Yud-K-Vav-K, for example, to indicate the four letters of God's ineffable name. We say K instead of He because we, we're trained to be very careful to not say the Almighty's name in vain. So we say Eke instead of the way it's spelled. Okay, Eke, I will be, what does that mean, says Rashi? I will be with them in this suffering In this painful experience, as I will be with them in all future episodes of suffering. So what name should I say? Ask Moshe. God says, well, you should say the name that I will be with them now and I will always be with the Jewish people. Moshe responded to God. I can't tell them that. They're suffering now and it's enough. For them to deal with one painful suffering episode at a time. I can't start invoking future suffering. And God says to Moshe, tells us Rashi, God says to Moshe, you're right. Instead, don't say Eka, Sher Eka. Don't say I will be with you now as I will be with you in the future. Instead, you should say I will always be with you and not invoke future sufferings. That's what, uh, what Rashi tells us how he explains this verse. Now, the obvious question is, wait a minute. Moshe asks God what name, and God gives an answer. And Rashi tells us that actually there was a dialogue. Moshe says, that's a terrible idea. They're suffering now, and they just can't bear the thought of any future suffering. And God says to Moshe, you know what, you're right. Let's change it. Let's use a different name. What's going on? How could Moshe know better than God? How could he correct God and say, well, no, we should use a different name. So the Maharal here explains something very fast. and I think this is going to be our next great lesson in leadership from this back and forth. Moshe asked the question. What was the question? The question that Moshe posed to God is, if they ask me what name, what shall I respond to them? And God said to him, if they ask you a question, you must tell them the answer regardless of how difficult and painful that may be. If they ask the question, you must be 100% accurate and honest in your response. And thus, if they ask you what name is God being, so to speak, represented over here in the Exodus with, you must say Eke Asher Eke, which is God's characteristic of always being with us, not just in this trouble, not just in this suffering, but in all future sufferings. If that's a question, you must give the accurate answer. So then Moshe said, wait a minute. Isn't that painful for them to hear? Isn't it enough that they're suffering now? They have to think about future suffering? So what does God respond? God responds, well, you asked me a question. What shall I say to them if they ask me what name of God is represented? And I responded to you. If they ask the question, you must give the accurate answer. But there's no reason why you should leave some daylight, so to speak, to allow them, to prompt them to ask such a question. Instead, you should preempt them and you should say simply, Eke sent me. Don't say, God sent me, and they'll say, well, what characteristic of God? And then you'll be forced to say the truth, which is Eke, Asher, Eke. I will be with you in this trouble as I will be with you In all future trouble. Instead, you should say, Eka sent me, which means I will be with you. And then they'll never ask to say, well, what's the, what's all the details, so to speak, of this name, i.e., of this method of treatment? If they ask you, you gotta say the correct answer. But you should preempt them by offering information that will satisfy their curiosity and won't prompt them to ask. I think this gives us two more very useful lessons. As a leader, as a teacher, as an educator, as someone of influence, you are morally required when someone asks you a direct question, you must answer it accurately, even if the answer is painful. But you are not required to frame a matter in a way that will evoke difficult questions. You could develop a technique to frame and position and couch a message in a way that won't prompt the audience to ask a question that they don't really want to hear the answer to. So we've learned several more lessons in leadership. Now, the narrative continues that God tells Moshe the actual content of the message, go convey this message to the elders, gather the elders, and tell them that God appeared to you, and that he's going to save them, and I'm going to bring you to the land of the Canaanites, the land flowing with milk and honey, and they're going to listen to you, and they're going to hearken to your words. And then you gather everyone, and you go to the king of Egypt, go to Pharaoh's home, and you bang on the door, and you demand that he send you free for three years initially, so that way you could worship God and he's not going to listen, and I'm going to smite him with all kinds of plates, and then he'll send you out. And when you send out, make sure everyone borrows lots of gold and silver from their neighbors. That's the actual content of the message. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, Moshe launches with objection number 4. And that is, Vayan Moshe, and Moshe responded, and he said, they won't believe me, and they won't hearken to my words, for they will say, God, indeed, did not appear to you. Moshe is now contesting the fact that the Jewish nation will believe him and will hearken to his message. Now, the Midrash says that this is the first objection that Moshe posed that was wrong, that was improper. Because after all, in chapter 3, verse 18, God says explicitly that they will listen to your voice. They will hearken To your words. Says the Talmud, this is an area where Moshe acted improperly. He falsely accused the innocent and therefore he was punished. So here we see in chapter 4 verse 1, we see that Moshe made a mistake. And what happens? Right away, he gets stricken. God tells him, well, what's this in your hand? It's a staff thrown on the ground and turns into a snake. And Moshe freaks out and he runs away from it. And God says, okay, grab the tail, and it turns once again back into a staff. Says Rashi, God is rebuking Moshe. God is reprimanding him. God is admonishing him. The snake spoke evilly back in Genesis. And now, Moshe, you have spoken evilly against the Jewish people. You have accused them of a crime that they're not guilty of, namely that of lack of belief. Continues God, stick your hand into your cloak. Sticks it in, it turns leprous. Stick it back in again, and once again, it turns back to the regular flesh-colored. Again, says Rashi, what does this mean? God is hinting to him that you have spoken evilly against the Jewish people because you have accused them that they're not going to believe you, and really, they will. And what happens to people shown a What happens to someone who speaks evilly against others? They get... Leprosy. So what's the lesson over here? So I want to suggest that maybe from here we learn that leaders are not perfect. Leaders, even the greatest leader of all, Moshe, they also have maybe somewhat of a learning curve, and we ought to grant them some flexibility. Leaders are not infallible, and they make mistakes. And you know what? That's okay. Even Moshe, the greatest leader of all, he wasn't perfect. He made a mistake. He falsely accused the Jewish people of not being believers. But what happens when he makes a mistake? You make a mistake, he is right away corrected. He's right away shown, and he has to adjust accordingly. God is training and grooming Moshe into becoming a better leader. And he says, now you made a mistake. And he right away points it out to him instantly. And he says, you've accused them falsely, don't do it again. Moshe has now been informed of the proper behavior. And I think oftentimes the constituents themselves, they have to train the leader. They have to acknowledge that nobody's perfect, no human's perfect, only God's perfect. And the leader must be receptive of their criticism and absorb it and try to adapt his or her behavior as a result. Continues Moshe with objection number five. Moshe says, I am unable to communicate effectively because I have a speech impediment. And the Midrash tells us, it's a very interesting backstory to Moshe's speech impediment, that when he was being raised in Pharaoh's household, he was beloved and Pharaoh used to frolic with him and he was so cute and he was so adorable and he used to playfully remove Pharaoh's crown and put it on his own head. And Pharaoh's advisors were appalled by this. Oh no, Moshe's gunning for your post. He wants to replace you. He wants to usurp you. Kill him. And Yisro, Jethro, who was an advisor of Pharaoh, says, no, this little Moshe kid, he is not dangerous. He is not seeking power. He's not trying to unseat you. He's just a kid. And in fact, he's a dim-witted kid. He just likes shiny objects. You'll see. And they bring in front of him a plate of burning coals. And they give him the option. Do you want the gold or do you want the coals, the fiery, exciting coals? And Moshe begins to take his hand towards the gold, and the angel comes and pushes his hand away and makes him grab the fiery coals, put it in his mouth, and he burns his mouth and develops a speech impediment. And now Moshe tells God, well, I have a speech impediment. How do you expect me to go negotiate with Pharaoh and gather the Jewish people and start this whole movement and this revolution to leave? After all, I'm not an effective communicator. Now, it's not immediately clear what the problem is. We've already seen in our Parsha how Moshe was able to communicate with the two quarreling Jews and he seemed to be quite effective in the way he was talking to them. So what's his problem? So I saw a different midrash. This is a midrash actually from Parsha's Devarim. And the Midrash offers a different approach. The Midrash says that when Moshe was concerned that he has a speech impediment, he cannot communicate, he cannot speak in a way that would be effective in helping the Jewish people leave. According to the Midrash, his problem was, is that he is coming as a representative of God. And in Egypt... They had people there who could speak all 70 languages. And if Moshe would come knock on the door and say, I want an audience with Pharaoh. What do you need? What do you want? Well, I'm coming here because God, the one power, that rules all, sent me. Well, okay, let's see what kind of knowledge you have. And they'll start testing him in all 70 languages. And Moshe didn't know all the 70 languages. And therefore, they would ridicule him and say, how could you possibly be an emissary of God and not know Swahili, Flemish, Dutch, Arabic, some other language? And therefore, Moshe is saying, wait, I have a technical problem. I know I'm going to need to know all 70 languages and I don't know them. I have a speech impediment that's going to preclude me from accomplishing this task. And the Almighty responds to him, don't worry, you go and I give people the ability to talk. I'll make sure that you'll be able to communicate effectively. And later on, since the Midrash, in the book of Deuteronomy and Devarim, Moshe is able to inscribe the whole Torah in 70 languages. He has overcome his speech impediment. So I want to maybe suggest the following. Moshe has a real problem. He knows that the only way he could be granted an audience and thus to even begin this whole process, get the ball rolling on the Exodus mission, this mission that God put him on to accomplish, he would need to know all 70 languages. And he's literally unable to accomplish the goal without the knowledge of all these languages. is telling God, what you want me to do is infeasible. I cannot do it. And God says, yes, He can. And I think there's a very powerful lesson here. When God chooses someone to accomplish a mission, to accomplish a task. There could be a brick wall in front of them, and there's just there's just no way to get past it. But the Almighty will find you a way. There's like a pledge here to leaders you will face insurmountable hurdles. And there's absolutely no way to get past them. But something will materialize. Don't worry about it. The Almighty, he's the one who makes people talk, and he's the one who makes people deaf, and he's the one who makes people mute. He's the one who gives everyone their power. He'll send you a miracle. What are you worried about? I think it's appropriate for me to share my favorite story. I think I've said it a few times, but I'll say it again. My grandfather, blessed memory, every week in the yeshiva that he founded, it was his responsibility to give a lecture. And we actually have, our family has 29 notebooks filled with about two and a half thousand lectures that he delivered over his tenure, over his career, and he wrote down with meticulous perfection – ready for publication, indeed three volumes have already been published. So he was clearly someone who was gifted at this particular role of delivering these speeches on a weekly basis. But he said over the following dramatic story, he says there was one week that he tried to prepare a lecture and nothing was going. And he tried and he tried and he tried, and he he had nothing to say. And the clock was ticking, and it's getting close and close to the time that he actually has to go to the yeshiva. And there's going to be hundreds of students, and they're waiting to hear his lecture. And he has nothing to say. What are you going to do? You're going know, to you get up there and just say gibberish, just blabber around? What are you going to do? And the time has come for him to go and give this lecture, and he still has nothing to say. But what are you going to do? He has to just go. So he starts walking. And he gets to the yeshiva and something that never happened before and never happened again happened. The rosh yeshiva, the dean of the yeshiva who was his partner running the yeshiva, approached him and says, I have an interesting request. I know this is your pulpit and this is your time of the week to give your lecture. But my father-in-law is in town and he really wants to give a lecture to the yeshiva students. Would you be okay? If he takes over your slot just this week. And then it, it clicked. When you're placed in a position of authority and influence and leadership, the Almighty is going to facilitate that. He's going to break through those proverbial brick walls that are standing in your way. And sometimes you'll find a brick wall and it doesn't seem to be budging. It's not moving. And then you'll discover that it's there for a reason. Every week when you do have a speech, every week when you are able to execute your responsibilities, that's because the Almighty makes a miracle. And you only discover that when you don't need the miracle and you don't get the miracle and you think you actually do need it and you discover you don't need it, and then everything clicks into place. Moses is telling God, I have a problem. I don't speak all the languages. I have the speech impediment and I'm not able to accomplish what you want me to do. And God says, don't worry. That's not for you to be worried about. Once I've selected you for this task, all those brick walls will just melt away and you're nothing to worry about. And then finally, Moshe tells the Almighty, send Aaron in my place. And Rashi says that really this was the only objection. Moshe was worried that his older brother will be bothered, will be offended, will be pained that his younger brother will surpass him. And therefore, Moshe felt that it would be improper for him to go to the Jewish people to safety, to have the Exodus, to be at the forefront, at the vanguard of the redemption efforts. And his older brother Aaron will have to play a supporting role, will be his lieutenant, but not be the leader. And God responds to Moshe, no need to worry. Aaron will be happy, will be glad in his heart. Aaron is someone that has absolutely no scintilla of envy. In his heart, he'll be happy for you. And as a result of this, Rashi tells us, Moshe was destined to be a Kohain, and Aaron was supposed to be the Levite, but because Moshe failed to appreciate the greatness of his brother, that his brother would not be bothered by the fact that Moshe will surpass him. As a result of that, Moshe lost the priesthood and Aaron became the Kohain, and Moshe remained a Levite. I think this is the final lesson from this exchange and that is that if you want to be a great leader, you must recognize the qualities and the exquisite traits of other people. And therefore Moshe here is being punished and God gets mad at him because he failed to perceive and to recognize that his own brother Aaron is the one person that actually does not have any envy. And perhaps we can extend this to say that a leader, one of the job responsibilities, the job requirements of the leader is to develop the skill of identifying the greatness that is inherent in other people, and that's their responsibility. And because Moshe didn't do it, his greatness, his leadership was to some degree lacking, and therefore he had to be trained, and he had to be guided, and to be told, Aaron indeed has this characteristic, and next time make sure that you're on the lookout, and you know, and you identify every other person what their greatness is. I think when we read this story now, we discover this truly a masterclass in teaching us how to be a transformative leader. Moshe, of course, had the goods. He was destined to be this great leader, but the mighty is training him. The mighty is grooming him and really showing us how to be a great leader. And the first thing you have to do is not to be hubristic, to realize that it's not you who's doing anything, it's God who's doing all the changes, and you are his tool. Number one. Number two, don't judge your subjects the way they are right now. See them for what they could become. They're unpolished. They're rough. But there's Torah, which can refine them. And you have to already envision that at the very beginning. If someone gives you a difficult question, you must answer it, no matter how painful it is, but you could prime them and you could frame the subject in a way that will avoid those difficult questions. The fifth lesson, don't expect leaders to be infallible. They make mistakes. Even most made a mistake. But leaders must make adjustments. And after you make a mistake, which is inevitable, make a mistake that you're not blamed for. Correcting it. Pronto, that's your responsibility. And if you don't do that, indeed, you are to blame. And the seventh lesson from this encounter is that leaders will face impossible challenges. Those brick walls. But you know what? God promises, God pledges, you will be able to break through that and you will endure. And finally, in addition to envisioning people as to what they could become, you must recognize people's existing characteristic and greatness And the Moshe is chided and is punished that he should have known that Aaron does not have any envy. I think, I think now it's eminently clear as to why the Torah has to tell us this whole story back and forth, the whole dialogue because when we study it and we list all the takeaways and all the very powerful lessons that it contains, it does show us the exact criteria of what it takes to be a great Jewish leader. Okay, let us begin this week's A and Q. I'm very delighted that we've gone through the whole book of Genesis 12 editions of A and Q and it's been a great success. A lot of people have emailed me. People seem to like it. So I guess we will continue with A&Q and let us begin with this week's question. So here's the question. Now, I want to point out that often when I ask a question, I already have an answer that I like ahead of time. But today, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need the incomparable Parsha podcast family to bail me out because I don't have an answer to this question, at least not yet. Maybe something will come up. But otherwise, I'm going to need your help for this one. Here's the question. In last week's parasha, Parshas Vayechi, we read about Reuven, Reuben. And Jacob is ostensibly blessing his children. And he tells Reuben, you were supposed to be the king, you were supposed to be the priest, but you lost it all. And that's the content of Jacob's blessing. But it's interesting that Reuven lost the priesthood Because he was impetuous when he rearranged Jacob's sleeping arrangements and he took Jacob's bed out of Billah's tent and moved it to Leah's tent. And thus, says Jacob, to Reuven, you lost the priesthood as a result and the kingdom as well. Priesthood went to Levi, kingdom went to Judah. But it hit me this week that Reuven was not the only person who lost the priesthood. In our partial, we just spoke about it a second ago. And our parsha, Moshe is told, Rashi this town, Moshe was supposed to be the Kohen. He was supposed to be the priest. And he lost it and it went to Aaron instead because Moshe failed to recognize Aaron's greatness. And he accused Aaron that Aaron would be unhappy, that Aaron would be offended if Moshe was the leader and Aaron had to watch his younger brother become greater than him. And therefore, God says, well, you were supposed to be the Kohen, now Aaron's the Kohen, you're a regular Levite. So here's the question. Torah tells us two people who lost the priesthood. And there doesn't seem to be any connection between the reason why Reuven lost the priesthood and the reason why Moshe lost it. And my question is, what is the common theme of both of these demotions? What is the connection between Reuven and rearranging Jacob's bed, interfering with Jacob's conjugal life, and that's why he lost the priesthood? And Moshe, who accuses Aaron of being offended if Moshe would become greater than him, and that's why Moshe lost the priesthood. What is the reason for losing and maintaining the tremendous role and responsibility of being the priest. That is the question. If you have an answer, be very helpful to me. Email me, RabbiWalby at gmail.com. So last week's question was actually the question that got more responses for that question than any other one of the previous 11 ANQs. Clearly, this segment is gaining some momentum. Now, all the people that email me with answers, first of all, I appreciate a lot. And I want to apologize that I don't respond promptly because I'm struggling with dealing with the email load and what I tried to do now is try to bunch them all together. So I actually save them in my inbox and when I'm ready to deal with it, I do it all at once and that's typically right before I record the current week's Parsha podcast. I answer all the previous emails from the previous week's Parsha podcast so you'll forgive me if I don't respond right away. So here was the question. The question was that Jacob displayed favoritism to Joseph over Joseph's brothers. And that had some disastrous consequences. And apparently at the end of Jacob's life, he still has not learned his lesson. He still is taking his right hand and putting it on Ephraim, doing that whole crisscross and favoring Ephraim over Manasseh. He is still gathering his 12 sons, giving some of them very lavish blessings and others he is berating. Why is Jacob still displaying favoritism? And a related question that we asked is how can we have tailored parenting without the negative consequences of favoritism? So we got all kinds of answers. And the idea, I think, the, the common idea that was shared by more of the respondents than any other is the following. Every human, and certainly every child, is different. And therefore, they ought to be treated in a different way. And each child should be given what they need at the particular time and at the particular setting and circumstances of their lives. Every child must be given what they need. And that does not cause the envy that's the problem. The problem is when a child feels like the parent is not just giving every other child what they need, but is favoring one over the other. And the way that it's mitigated is when the children are impressed with the idea, with the insight, with the perspective that they are united they're a team. They're together. They have a common goal. Ephraim and Manasseh, how many blessings do they get from Jacob? They get only one blessing. They are a team. Ephraim and Manasseh, they're together. And the question is, okay, who has the right hand, who has the left hand? Ephraim gets the right hand. Manasseh gets the left hand. But they get one blessing. And they are being told over here, you two are one unit. You two complement each other. You two are together. Ephraim has a larger role than Manasseh. But you know what? When you're on a team, when you're united for one goal and one purpose, then there's no room for this harmful competition, for this envy, and for a problem of favoritism. Similarly, Jacob gathers his whole family and he tells them, I'm going to give you the tools that all of you need to be able to bring about the end of days and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic mission and destiny. All of you are needed. You're all together on this mission. You're all on board on the same unified objective. And some of you need to be directed in this way. And some of you need to be directed in a different way. And everyone needs to be tweaked and prodded and poked in their specific ways. Some of them it sounds like a blessing, some of them it sounds like a curse, but all of them are together and all of them are experiencing this same revelation at once. And also Jacob prefaces it by saying, this is how you achieve your destiny together. When everyone recognizes they're on the same team and everyone's different and everyone has different job responsibility, then they're each happy with their own particular job and with the role that their friend has and there's no competition. There's no problem of favoritism. So that I think would explain Jacob's change. You know, when he gives the tunic to Joseph and not to the brothers, they view Joseph as different. He's not part of our team. He's someone that they alienate. They otherize him. He's Joseph and, and he's not us and he has his dreams. He'd be better than us. There's a certain separation of this team. And therefore, it's a problem. And therefore, the favoritism has disastrous consequences. But what happens once everyone's together and they all know this is one united mission? There's no problem with favoritism. And indeed, everyone must know that they have their own particular role to play in this collective effort to achieve this collective goal. I thank you for listening. I hope it was enjoyable. As always, my email address is... RabbiWalby we'll at Jima.com Have an amazing Shabbos, have an amazing rest of your week, and please God we will speak next week.